bless the Lord. We thank God for a fresh opportunity and a new day for us to look into His Word. And uh, this week, we are dealing with chapter 1, as you know, but we are going to get into verses 4 to 14, 10 verses here, but we're going to deal with, and all of these 10 verses set out to prove that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, let me read these uh, verses, and I'm reading from the American Standard Version, and uh, then we're going to get into unpacking these verses, and I'm going to unpack them statement by statement, um, because you'll understand as we go through this why the author of the book of Hebrews took this particular stance to write about angels in comparison to Jesus. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 4. Having become by so much better than the angels, as he hath inherited a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he again bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, who maketh his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of, un of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou continuest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a mantle shalt thou roll them up as a garment, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But of which of the angels hath he said at any time, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thy enemies the footstool of thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to do service to, for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation? Now, the subject of angels has certainly become a popular one in recent years. Your bookstores carry a good supply of books dealing with the subject of angels. They are also a very um, popular on television and uh, shows and movies that depicts angels working in our lives. Some of these are Highway to Heaven, or Touched by an Angel, The Preacher's Wife, and It's a Wonderful Life. Now, angels were very important 
in the Jewish religion. The Jews venerated angels because of their place and the giving of, of the law, and it was essential for the author of the book of Hebrews to show these Jewish Christians uh, by comparison uh, that Jesus is infinitely superior uh, to angels or all of these heavenly beings and that he has a significant role much greater than that of angels to play in their lives. You notice that from the very onset, angels appear to the patriarchs. For example, Abraham, later on to Moses, and then also to Daniel and many others conveying messages from God. It would appear that these angels were very active in the time of the formation of the people of God and were carrying messages to certain individuals especially uh, as Israel was being formed as a nation and the period prior to that. Now, since the purpose of the epistle to the Hebrews is to show the superiority of Christ and that of the new covenant to the law of Moses, it is of utmost importance that the writer has something to say about angels. So in the first few verses of chapter 1, we find the comparison of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to prophets, and then immediately it's followed by the comparison to angels. The author now sets out to establish the premise that the Son is much better than angels. He says in the opening statement of verse 4, having become so much better than the angels. So this description of Jesus uh, in the previous verses show that he is far superior to any angelic being. Yet the verse tells us that Jesus became better than the angels. He, would, he could say that he is eternally better than the angels, but he also became better than the angels. When we make the statement, Jesus became better, it's in the sense that he was made perfect or that he was made complete as our Redeemer through sufferings. This is Hebrews 2.10. Something that no angel ever did. Jesus is better than the angels because the descriptions of Jesus given in the first few verses, culminating here in Hebrews 1.4, identifies him as Christ the heir, Christ the creator, Christ the revealer of the Father, Christ the sustainer of all of creation, Christ the redeemer of all creation, Christ the supreme ruler. And so it's essential to see that right here at the outset of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the author sets out to show the supremacy of Christ, not only 
over prophets in the Old Covenant, and here he sets out to prove the supremacy of Christ over angels. Then he goes on to say, a more excellent name than they. Jesus' Jesus' superior status is demonstrated by a superior name. This name is not merely a title, but a description of his nature and character. There are many reasons why it is important to understand the surpassing excellence of Jesus, setting him far above every angelic being. Now, we often best understand things when they are set in contrast to other things. The Old Covenant came by the hands of angels to Moses. A new and better covenant came by a better being, Jesus Christ the Lord. First century Jews might think that the gospel came by the hands of mere men, the apostles. But in truth, the gospel came by Jesus Christ, who is superior to angels. There was a dangerous tendency to worship angels developing in the early church. And you can see this recorded in Colossians 2.18 and Galatians 1.8. And Hebrews shows that Jesus is high above any angel. There was the heretical idea that Jesus himself was an angel, a concept that degrades his glory and majesty, even to this day, there are people who believe that Jesus was just an angel, and even people like the Jehovah's Witnesses continue to believe that. Understanding how Jesus is better than the angels helps us to understand how he is better than anyone or anything in our life. In this sense, the purpose of Hebrews is like the purpose of the transfiguration of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. There on the mountain you had Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And the Father's affirmation is about Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear he him. The Father is saying, I am now speaking in a Son. So, each of these comparisons that we see in the book of Hebrews is literally crying out and saying, This is my beloved Son, hear he him. That is a remarkable thing. The book of Hebrews is helping us understand, not only is the Father speaking in the Son, but what he is saying in the Son. Now, when we get to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1, the, the scriptures set out to prove this concept that Jesus is superior to angels. It says here, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, let's unpack these verses 
sta the, the statement by statement. Let's begin firstly by, for, to which of the angels did he ever say? The author of Hebrews proved that Jesus is superior to any angelic being because God the Father says things to God the Son that he never said to angels. Then it goes on, you are my son. Psalm 2.7 shows that God the Father called Jesus Son, the more excellent name recorded in Hebrews 1.4. This shows that Jesus is greater than the angels because no angel was ever given this great name. You know, though the angels may collectively be called sons of God, you'll see that recorded in Job chapter 1 verse 6, we have to remember that from the time of the incarnation of Jesus, the heavens and the order, the divine order of God has changed. And so no angel is ever given that title individually. There's no angel, not even Gabriel or Michael, who are the great angels and who lead hordes of angels, are called Son of God. Then it goes on to say, Today I have begotten you. God the Father spoke to God the Son and described him as begotten. The word begotten speaks of the equality of substance and essential nature between the Father and Son. It means that the Father and the Son share the same being of the same DNA. It goes on to say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a quotation from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And it's an example of something that God the Father said to God the Son that he has never said to any angel. Now, this statement is a good example of an Old Testament prophecy that have two fulfillments in mind. In the near and imperfect sense, the promise of 2 Samuel 7.14 was fulfilled in David's son Solomon. But in a more distant and perfect sense, it is fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus Christ. This is incredible. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Just to help you understand, I may have said this to you before, but about one-third of the New Testament consists of quotations out of the Old Testament. And so here's a classical example uh, of the author of Hebrews taking passages from the Old Testament. Uh, for example, I've quoted earlier Psalm 2.7, now I'm quoting uh, from 2 Samuel 7.14. Uh, and, and it's essential to see how these quotations come out of the Old Testament and is now demonstrated for us in the new. Now as we go on to verse 6 and 7 of Hebrews 1, we find two more Old Testament quotations. 
this time Deuteronomy 32, 43 and Psalm 104, verse 4. It reads as follows, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, let's unpack these verses and let's go again statement by statement. It says firstly, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, the word firstborn was used both as an idea or a concept and to designate uh, the one born first. Since the firstborn son was first in line and received the position of favor and honor, the title firstborn could indicate that someone was of the highest position and honor. Many of those not born first in the Bible is given the title firstborn. David is an example of this, recorded in Psalm 89, 27. And so was Ephraim in Jeremiah 31, 9. Both of these individuals were not firstborn in their family, but because God elected them and selected them for a particular task, he brought them into the position of firstborn. So this is an honor that's also conferred upon all the mature sons of God in Christ Jesus. You will remember when we studied the whole aspect of firstborn sonship. Rabbis used the term firstborn as a specifically messianic title. One of the ancient rabbis wrote, God said, as I made Jacob a firstborn, remember, Jacob was not the firstborn, Esau was the firstborn. As I made Jacob a firstborn, so also will I make King Messiah a firstborn. So, this is essential to understand that he is not firstborn in the sense that he is the first to, to occupy the place of sonship, but he is firstborn because of rank, of order, because of authority, dominion, and power that God has placed upon him. Then it goes on to say, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1.6 shows that Jesus is superior because he is the object of angelic worship, not an angelic worshiper. So the instruction of God to the angels is all of the angels are to worship Jesus. So the angels worship him. He does not worship among them. A good understanding of this is if you study in Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John gives us a glimpse of the angelic worship of Jesus. What a magnificent picture he paints for us of all of heaven's host, bringing praise, worship, adoration, lavishing love upon the Lord Jesus Christ um, in their worship. Then he goes on to say in the same passage, who makes his angels spirits 
and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 104 verse 4 demonstrates that Jesus the Messiah is Lord over the angels. They are his angels and his ministers. The angels belong to Jesus and he is not merely among them. They are there to serve his purpose. Uh, you would notice that at, at his incarnation, at his birth, they were there to announce the arrival of the king. They were there to serve him. They were there to proclaim the message to announce his arrival that has been prophesied by the prophets many, many years ago. Now as we go on to verse 8 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 1, it states in this passage, Jesus is superior to the angels because the Father calls, the Father himself calls him God and Lord. The word Lord in the Hebrew, Yahweh, as shown in Psalm 45, 6 to 7. So this passage I'm reading now in Hebrews 1, 8 to 12 is a quotation out of Psalm 45, 6 and 7, and Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Let me read the passage. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, as he continues, as he says, and, that's the passage in Psalm 102, he's now beginning, verse 25, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will fold them away, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. All right, let's go through this statement by statement. Let's begin in the beginning. But to the Son, he says, important, it says, here the emphasis is that God the Father says things to God the Son that is never said to any angelic being. He says, Your throne, O God. This is a quotation out of Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It plainly says that God the Father calls the Son God. That's incredible because we're seeking to prove biblically, theologically, historically, that Jesus is superior to angels, and there is little more proof needed than when God the Father calls God the Son, God. The first person of the Trinity speaks up to the second person of the Trinity, and then he calls him God. This is a unique and powerful evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. Then later on, Jesus is the true living God, as you know, and he's called here by God the Father. 
and by John, later on in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Come on, right there in John 1 1. Later on, Thomas would acknowledge this in John 20 verse 28. And Paul would write about this in Titus 2.13 and Titus 3 verse 4. Then it goes on, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. This passage shows striking interaction between the persons of the Trinity. God, your God, speaks of the Father and his position of authority over the second person of the Trinity. You refers to the Son. Anointed has in mind the ministry and presence of Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Oh, this is a remarkable um, uh, uh, understanding of, the, of the, the spirit of understanding working between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit goes on to say, you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. It shows that the Son is not only called God, but also Lord. There's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So the Son is described with attributes and terms that belong only to God. It says, you Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. This shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the creator. Yahweh is specifically said to be the creator. You see that recorded in Isaiah 45.12 and Isaiah 45.18. It goes on to say, they will perish, but you will remain. This speaks of the things that he created. This shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is self-existent. In other words, there is a, the power in which he sustains his own being. And this is recorded in the passage we read earlier in Psalm 102. It says then, like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. Speaking of creation, this shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is sovereign and with authority over all of creation and history, even as Psalm 102 says this of Yahweh. It says, you are the same. This shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is immutable. He's unchangeable and eternal. Come on, you know the scriptures. It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says, years will not fail him. This is to say that Yahweh, and the writer of the Hebrews says here, that it clearly depicts him as far, far, far superior to any angelic being. Now as we go on to verse 13 and 14 of Hebrews 1, we find that Jesus is superior to angels. Why? Because he sat down. 
having completed his work, while the angels work on continually, as shown in Psalm 110 verse 1. It says here, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? And they are, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's unpack this statement by statement. But to which of the angels has he ever said? So now for the seventh time in this chapter, the writer to the Hebrews quotes the Hebrew scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus the Messiah is far superior to any angelic being. This is incredible because remember, the book is written to the Hebrews. These are Jews who received Jesus Christ for their salvation. And now he's showing them from the ancient scriptures, from the Torah. He's showing them from the, the books of wisdom. He's showing them that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. And what did he say? Sit at my right hand. Psalm 110.1 This is an exalted place and a posture in heaven. I believe anyone who sits in the divine presence shows that they have the perfect right to be there. You don't sit in the presence of royalty. You don't sit in the presence of, of the Almighty God, that is the position in which everybody stands except the Son, the 24 elders to whom he given the authority to be seated there around his throne, and of course, the Lamb who is in his station, the seven spirits before the, the altar of God, the, the throne of God, everything else in heaven stands. But here, to the Son, he says, sit at my right hand. So, for angels, there are no seats around the throne of God. Because they are constantly busy doing what? Praising God, serving God, carrying messages out for Him. Yet to Jesus, the Son, the beloved Son, there's the invitation of the Father, sit at my right hand. This is incredible because the right hand is the place of rulership, of dominion, of power. So Jesus is not a subject who is required to stand or worship in the presence of God the Father. He is a sovereign. He sits in the presence of majesty. The angels are not permitted to be relaxed before God. They stand before the Father but the Son sits down because He isn't a subject. He is a sovereign in this kingdom. It says, are they not all ministering spirits? Speaking of the angels. Angels are ministering spirits. They are not governing spirits. They provide service, not dominion. That's not their calling. So, in this respect, angels keep working while the Son takes a posture of rest because He is the Son of God and His work 
has been completed. So Jesus, of course, is also called a servant and a minister. But this is part of his voluntary humiliation, not his essential nature, as it is essential to the nature of angels to be servants. Let me remind you of Philippians 2 verse 8. And being found in, the, in fashion as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself, being, becoming obedient even to death, yea, the death of a cross. So here you see Jesus Christ humbling himself in order to fulfill the Father's mission. But that is not his essential nature. It's not his eternal posture. It is what he did in his incarnation. It goes on to say, these angels are sent forth to minister to those who will inherit eternal life or salvation. So these angels are commanded to serve God, but what does he do? He shares his servants with the redeemed men and women. This shows the great love of God for us and how he wants to share all things with us. Now, on several occasions in the past, people have come to me to tell me that whilst I minister the word of God, an angel of God stands over me in a posture of guarding me. This has happened in several places where I've ministered the word of the Lord. This is an incredible thing because angels are there to strengthen us, to protect us, even to direct us at times. And this is an incredible thing to see the manifestation of angelic beings for us. Because what are they? They are serving spirits. Their job is to serve us and to help us to fulfill the assignment that God has given us. Now, folks, in conclusion, let me give you a summary quickly of what we've said up till now. Because in a very forceful manner, the writer to the Hebrews has shown Jesus as superior to any angelic being. Firstly, Jesus is the Son. No angel can claim that. Secondly, Jesus is the firstborn who receives worship. No angel receives worship. No angel has the position of firstborn. Thirdly, Jesus is God and is enthroned and is anointed. No angel can make that claim. Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh who is eternal and who is the creator. And no angels who are only created beings can make that claim. And then Jesus is sovereign. He's reigning at God's right hand. And angels are only ministering spirits. So while angels certainly have a special place in God's plan for the redeeming man, they are not to become objects of worship. You see in Colossians, every time you see an angel appear, uh, those who, who witness their appearance falls down prostrate and wants to worship them. And every time you will see, they tell them, do not worship me. Because angels are not to receive worship. So it says in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, 
Let no man rob you of your prize by a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. In other words, you need to understand in the present economy of God, for those of us who are in Christ, angels are beneath us. That's why the Apostle Paul says, we will eventually judge angels. We will eventually judge their works. So it says, by voluntary humility, in other words, you've got to humble yourself to worship an angel, and worshiping of angels, dwelling in the things which he hath seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast the head, Jesus Christ. Not holding fast the head. In other words, if you embark on the worshiping of angels, you've let go of holding on to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is from whom all the body being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands, increasing with the increase of God. That main passage there, Colossians 2, 18 and 19, is to discourage the worship of any angelic being. So if you ever, by God's grace and mercy, have an encounter with an angel, your work is to receive the message that they bring and the impartation that they bring, but never to worship them. So the second statement in my closure here, first one is they are not to become an object of worship. And the second statement is that only Jesus is worthy of such worship and adoration. And I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 5, uh, rather uh, chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. It says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. Jesus is worthy of our worship, of our praise, of our adoration because he is a million times a million, times millions and gazillions greater than any created being of an earth such as an angel. It says, let Jesus and not angels be the focus of our interest and adoration. Folks, grace and peace in Christ Jesus the Lord. Next week, we look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, dealing with the subject there, lest we drift away. Dealing with the subject, lest we drift away. Grace to you and peace to you and your household in Christ Jesus the Lord.